Welcome back to the Grad Life Podcast. My name is Matthew, and on the show today I'll be speaking with Roisin Costello, Assistant Professor of Law at DCU. After studying law in Trinity College Dublin, Roisin completed her Master's in Sciences Po in Paris, as well as Georgetown University in Washington, before completing her PhD at Trinity College Dublin. She is also a qualified barrister specialising in areas of EU law and technology law, with a particular emphasis on privacy, technology and property. Roisin gives us her insights today on a career in legal academia. So hi, Roisin. Welcome to the show. It's really great to have you. Thanks, Millie and Matthew. Happy to be here. So I suppose we'll start off, as we usually do, with you studying uh, in college, uh, graduating law in Trinity. Um, so I suppose I want to ask kind of what prompted law and, and how did you find studying in Trinity? Sure. So I suppose I have kind of a very unromantic story of how I ended up in law, which is I wanted to be an architect, but I was exceptionally bad at math. <laughs> and my parents convinced me that law would be kind of a good degree to do because I didn't know what to do um, when I wasn't doing architecture so they thought it would be a nice responsible choice for me. Um, So that's how I ended up uh, doing law. I kind of uh, picked Trinity um, because I kind of liked the university. I think enough a lot of people kind of go with their gut when they're picking. Uh, So Trinity was my first choice and then I had kind of UCD and everywhere else. Um, Yeah so I started without any kind of um, great aspirations to end up kind of a Supreme Court judge or anything like that. Uh, and I just really loved it. Yeah, I just really, I think I was very lucky. Uh, I got in, really enjoyed my classes um, and kind of the teaching style in Trinity with the seminars and everything. We had a great group in our year. Um, and I just ended up kind of really, really liking it. Um, and kind of, I suppose things kind of took off from there and <laughs> took on a bit of a life of their own. Uh, but I certainly didn't come into it, I don't think, with any kind of... Um, intention I was going to stay in law and I certainly would never have when I was sitting at my CEO have told you uh, that I was going to do a PhD in law uh, or end up teaching law myself or anything like that um, so I suppose from from small beginnings yeah yeah no it's it's it's, it's really interesting to have kind of that unorthodox uh, approach I think a lot of people do see law though as kind of uh, it's a safe bet in, in a way because it, it, it does open so many doors um, so I suppose then when you were in college and you were faced with kind of the decision of where you might go after that what kind of uh, influenced your thinking because uh, I know in college we see a lot of kind of uh, corporate law opportunities to be a solicitor and, and uh, we see a lot of kind of talk about being a barrister as well but we don't see so much about, about anything else so what it, what what was it in college that I suppose that that influenced your thinking? Um, yeah it's a really good question so I think the, the really important thing always and it's something uh, Professor Vaughan Scannell told us when we were in first year her kind of sage words were to spend our summers very wisely so to spend our summers trying to figure out you know doing a three weeks north of Cox or whatever and thinking out should we like that or did it seem appealing to us to try and get into kind of you know some policy work if we enjoyed that kind of thing and so I spent a lot of my summers doing or I guess portions of my summers uh, doing those kind of things and trying to by process of elimination figure out what interested me and I think I was pretty lucky that I really enjoyed um, the academic portions of law I really liked writing uh, I knew I really enjoyed the pieces of law that intersected with public policy. Um, and I pretty much knew when I was kind of coming into fourth year, having done a couple of different things during the summer, that um, I was going to go into a graduate program, uh, a master's, and I was going to probably, in all likelihood, go into a PhD at some point fairly soon after that, uh, and probably practice um, at the bar while I was kind of doing academia, which is sort of the Trinity model, right? Um, so I, I was kind of lucky that. 
my interest kind of led me fairly clearly to that. And um, that being said, kind of in between finishing my master's work and starting my PhD work, I had I kind of gone and done other stuff. So I had I had done a bit of commercial law and I, I had done some policy work and things like that. Um, so I think that's kind of the nice thing about law, like you said there, it's, it's a really good basis for doing things that really have nothing to do with your degree when you finish. Um, but it's also a really good basis to do a lot of things which are complementary to your degree. Um, so like I really enjoyed um, my time doing policy work. Uh, it had almost nothing to do with law a lot of the time, uh, but it was really, really interesting. Um, I did some advocacy work when I was living in the States and, and that was also really interesting, but it's kind of, I guess, law fair as opposed to law itself. Um, so it really does, it offers you a lot of springboards in terms of doing non-law things, but it also offers you great skills in terms of, well, especially our degree in Trinity, uh, in terms of engaging in different types of law as well. Um, so yeah, I guess I was kind of, it sounds kind of like I fell into everything, doesn't it? <laughs> but I, I enjoyed the degree and then I kind of just uh, realised fairly quickly what I wanted to do with it, I suppose. Yeah, no, of course. Uh, I think that that's the case with a lot of people. You kind of figure it out as you go along. Um, so I suppose then the next stop was Paris and you went to, to Sciences Po. Uh, would you mind telling us a bit about, about that? Yeah, so I um, I spoke very good French, I suppose. I don't know if it's still as good as it used to be. Um, but when I was coming to the end of the degree, I kind of uh, was trying to figure out what kind of graduate programme would equip me best for kind of what I wanted to do. I was very interested in uh, the interaction of law and policy, I kind of felt like I didn't have maybe the grounding in humanities or social sciences more generally, uh, that maybe people like my friends who done HISTPOL and stuff like that did. Um, and Sciences Po actually offer a kind of joint master's program at Georgetown Law. Uh, so you do your first year in Sciences Po and you get a degree of international affairs, uh, sort of largely based on political uh, science and public policy. And then you go to Georgetown the next year and you get your, your LLM. And it seemed like it was pretty well tailored to my specific areas of interest. Georgetown had just set up a kind of big uh, privacy and technology law center, which was kind of my, at uh, the beginning of my interest in it. Uh, and I thought it'd be kind of good to get on, in on the ground there. So I suppose that was like really the choice that it was very specifically tailored to the areas I wanted to pursue in academia, but also kind of had very good links to practice. Um, I suppose it didn't hurt that I was spending a year in Paris and a year in DC, that's always nice. <laughs> Uh, it's always good to pick somewhere you will you will want to be. Um, but I suppose that was kind of the the kind of thinking in it. I knew I wanted to do a PhD at some point, so I knew I needed to have a kind of a good master's to do that. Like I did apply for other master's programs and got into a few others, but at the end of the day, that was the one I kind of felt would serve me best. Um, and I'm always kind of very reluctant to advise people about master's programs because it's so specific um, to each individual in terms of what you would like to do and also what would be useful to you so like I'm never really keen to advise people to do a master's because they just want to kind of fill a year or something like that you know part of my thing else are very expensive um but you should really do it if you if, if there's a particular motivation for doing it it isn't something I'd kind of uh, embark on you know for the crack or anything like that um and especially like some of them are probably kind of less intensive than others but the the, the master's in science po is very um full on <laughs> so you have to do kind of graduate economics and stuff like that so you don't get to um you don't get to swan around Paris for a year very unfortunately which I kind of discovered in month two um but yeah so that was kind of uh that's kind of the reason I took it um and yeah yeah 
Yeah, I, I think that's that's really good advice to be kind of a bit more purposive about the the masters, not just to do it for the sake of it. Um, and you touched a bit on then when you were in Georgetown in Washington doing the LLM, the the work you did with the uh, in privacy and technology law. Uh, would you mind like telling us a bit more about that and kind of what sort of things you 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 did? Yeah, so I I think the like, American universities are are great for the LLM programs because you get so many opportunities to get work experience while you're doing the academic side. Uh, I mean, obviously there's a price tag associated with that. Um, so I was lucky that I had uh, scholarships to go to Georgetown, um, and when I got over there. I kind of had, you know, like one or two student jobs that kind of paid for food and stuff. Um, but then I had, uh, I had like a research job as well. So I had a research job in the Centre for Privacy and Technology Law. It had just kind of started um, and Alvaro Bedoya, who's still in charge of it, um, had taken over. He just left kind of very senior uh, policy work on the Hill uh, for, for a congressman, uh, which he'd done for kind of a significant period. Uh, and he was taking it over and kind of starting to build it up. And I worked as his research assistant for the year. And um, it's a really good opportunity to do. I mean, it's, it's becoming more common now to have it sort of on this side of the Atlantic as well, to be able to do some research assistant work when you're you're doing graduate work. It was really invaluable because I saw him kind of um, developing ideas and how he came up with kind of his angles on policy and how he developed advocacy reports. Um, and some of the stuff I, I kind of helped him research that year went on to be, you know, really significant in terms of the development of US federal law. So we did some work on uh, a report, which was eventually called the Perpetual Lineup, which talked about facial recognition technology and how it was used um, in the state and particularly by law enforcement to create these kind of enduring databases of individuals who may not even have committed crimes. Um, and kind of the racial bias that went into um, facial recognition specifically in the States where it disproportionately misidentified um, members of the African-American community or uh, people essentially who weren't Caucasian. Um, so it was really, really interesting work. It was kind of my, my dream work because it married law and policy so well. And you kind of began to see when I was there kind of really practical impacts in terms of people coming in and saying, you know, I want to push for federal law on this. What can you tell me about it? Um, so I, I did that and it was really, really interesting. I also did some work for EPIC, which is the Electronic Privacy Information Center in, in DC. They're kind of um, a fairly large NGO and one of the leading kind of um, NGOs in the state working on privacy issues. And I was their um, a public interest and consumer protection clerk. So I, I covered kind of uh, consumer goods and the privacy impacts they had. So we had a a big case where we bought a load of smart TVs and left around the office and thought they were listening to us. Um, and that was really interesting work as well. And they were kind of, well, Alvaro and I were focused, I suppose, quite on the academic side, albeit it had practical applications. Epic is really focused on kind of practical advocacy. So setting up lawsuits and bringing them strategically in different jurisdictions around the state to try and force kind of like a momentum of legal change. Um, so it was really, really valuable. Um, and really clarified kind of my own thinking about what my particular research uh, interests were. Yeah, no, that's really fascinating. Like it's something completely different to to the very kind of um, formalized uh, college experience that we have here and like how, how you can do something so different. Uh, it's really, really interesting. Um, and I suppose you touched again then on like how that would shape your research interests. Uh, because then you came back to, to Trinity to, to complete your PhD. Uh, so would you mind telling us a bit, a, a bit more about that? About that? 
Yeah, so when I was in Georgetown, I um, did my kind of uh, the equivalent of a, a kind of master's dissertation, which they have, which is graduate research um, on the kind of divergence in between how kind of privacy law developed in the States and how it developed in an EU context and kind of, I suppose, the historical relationship between the two, they're quite kind of interrelated when you get into it. Um, and I found that really interesting. And I'd always had um, a kind of ongoing interest in how uh, technology and media were, were kind of interacting and how they're being treated by the courts in Ireland. So kind of the big EMI um, intellectual property decisions had come down when I was in kind of in second year of university. Um, and that had kind of set me off in that course and I'd maintained kind of an interest in it. It crystallized when I was in Georgetown really. And um, when I finished my master's uh, thesis, I was kind of pretty sure that was going to be the ultimate subject of my, my PhD work. Um, so kind of in between that, when I when I finished, I was offered a job uh, in London, which I, I did for a while, um, and then came back here and worked in policy for, for a little while, and then uh, moved into the PhD. But during that time, I'd kind of continued to, to publish, and especially when I was kind of uh, doing the policy, policy and advocacy work, um, I was really working an awful lot on the same issues I'd worked on in Georgetown. I was looking an awful lot at kind of the development of EU privacy regulations um, and kind of ongoing uh, issues around state surveillance in, in the EU context. Um, so when I came to kind of apply for the PhD, I, I really had, you know, the guts of what I wanted to say down on paper, which I suppose is unusual. Usually you spend the first year of your PhD, they say, trying to figure out what you're going to say. Uh, maybe my supervisor is today, I did. I'm not sure, but I thought I had it figured out. Um, so that's kind of how I came to it. I'd, I'd kind of known I wanted to go back into to academia at some point. Um, and after kind of, I suppose, a few years kind of um, doing different things, I kind of thought, you know, it's time to bite the bullet and, and, and write this thing if we're going to do it at all. Um, so I came back to Ireland and uh, started the PhD in Trinity. Um, yeah, which is where I taught you, Matthew. Yes, indeed. Um, and and how did you find then the pro like the process of actually doing the PhD um, and how did it compare to kind of what you had done before? Uh, because I know it's something kind of people toy with the idea of, but um, if it's not something that people are really, really serious about, it can be hard to kind of justify the 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 process, I suppose. Yeah, it, it, it can be. And um, Jane Omar, who's currently running for provost, um, kind of says this thing always, uh, she was uh, in charge of the long room hope when I was doing my PhD and she used to kind of constantly say to us, you know, you don't do a PhD because you want a job, you do a PhD because you love it, which is kind of uh, discouraging, but also very true because um, there are, there are just not really an awful lot of jobs in academia. Um, and I suppose in law, there are, are more than in other areas. So you're like you're far more likely to have an assistant professorship in law coming up than an assistant professorship in like medieval English literature, for example. Um, so I think we have it slightly easier, but um, it is, it, it, it's kind of a difficult, um, it's a difficult one again to advise people on. I think probably if you have something that is kind of like your passion and you know you want to spend the rest of your life writing about it and you think it's really important, um, and you know, doing a PhD won't be maybe a huge, um, huge challenge for you. It's it's very difficult in terms of it's you're working on your own, <laughs> and you you know even if you have the best supervisor in the world, you spend large amounts of time uh, trying to figure it out yourself. So it's a very challenging kind of structure in that respect, and it is very long. Uh, and you do end up doing it usually in your kind of mid to late twenties, when most of your friends are you know making nice money in commercial law, and you're kind of slaving away on your student stipend um so there are kind of a lot of things that discourage people from doing it 
Um, but if you do have kind of an area you're you're really passionate about and there's a reason you think you need a PhD to pursue that on a professional basis, then, you know, it's kind of the, the barrier to entry, right? So if you want to teach law, you pretty much need a PhD. Um, so you, you have to do it and you just have to kind of figure out how to get that done in, I suppose, the least painful way possible. Um, but it's certainly not... It's kind of hard, um, I suppose, to give an ex like a, a description of a PhD that doesn't sound sort of vaguely terrifying or maybe explicitly terrifying uh, to people, but it's it's incredibly pressurized. Um, so like three or four years sounds like a long period of time, but then you have to factor in the fact that you're probably going to have to work essentially part time, but maybe functionally full time <laughs> uh, to kind of pay your rent and things at the same at the same time. Even if you get very good funding, you're still under a huge amount of pressure. Um, to meet the, the deadlines in terms of that funding you have to try and publish this at the same time in order to up your chances of getting a job um, and that's without kind of you know like if you have a, a family or anything like that while you're doing it so it's, it's an incredibly I suppose a pressurized period of time um, you know the, the number of people who have PhDs is relatively low because most people are sane uh, so the number of your friends who kind of understand what you're going through and that kind of stuff will be minimal <laughs> So it's a, it's a very kind of unusual context to find yourself in. And it's not one which is, um, you know, for everybody. You have to really know that you have the discipline to do work that is going to be entirely self-directed. Nobody's going to check up on you or make sure that you're meeting your road count or, or that you've written anything, maybe. Um, a very active supervisor might get you kind of to submit chapters very, very regularly. But mostly you'll just have conversations about how the work is going and every now and then you'll give them something to, to read over to make sure you haven't gone completely off piste. But it's it's a really particular, I'm not explaining it very well, but it's a kind of a, a very particular kind of type of work. Um, and it just doesn't suit some people in terms of temperament uh, and in terms of the, the structure they like or, or need to complete work. And then of course it's, it's not easy. <laughs> so, uh, it's sort of, it's not something I'd recommend unless you have a specific reason to, to need to have the PhD. You know, some people, I've had conversations with some people like during the course of it as I came to the end in particular saying, you know, I really want to write a book about this and I think I need a PhD to write it. And my advice usually is like, well, <laughs> just write the book. Uh, unless, they're, unless you're writing for like a very specific academic market where you want like Cambridge University Press to publish this as a the most recent volume in their European law series. Uh, in that case, yeah, you probably will need a PhD to convince Cambridge to publish that. But if you want to write a book about environmental change and the impact of law on it, you could just write a book on that. <laughs> uh, you don't need a PhD. So I think it's the same thing with the masters. I'm always kind of very relu reluctant to say, generally, yes, you need one or you should do one just because you like something. Um, I think sometimes PhD might kill your interest in something. <laughs> so if you have an area you really like, maybe you should not do a PhD and it'll be the best advice. But um, yeah, it's it's kind of, it's a very individual decision. And it's definitely, I think the thing that I, the only piece of advice that definitely holds true is to be very careful about where you choose to do it and who you choose to do it with. So I uh, chose to come back to Trinity really expressly uh, and I chose my supervisor. So those choices are the ones that like on the the worst of writing days or if you're having a bad couple of months and nothing seems to be going well are the things that will allow you to keep going uh, if you know you've kind of got a supportive uh, faculty a supportive supervisor 
um, and you're in a place where you have kind of um, other people you can turn to outside the university as well. Um, so, you know, people go off and do PhDs in like Stockholm or Cambridge or wherever. Um, but sometimes it's worth, you know, really thinking very hard about, you know, who's the best supervisor I can get for this. Um, but also I'm going to have probably a very tough three or four years. It's going to be difficult. Um, and how can I put myself in a position in an institution where I know that, you know, in my worst moments, <laughs> uh, I'll still have some kind of uh, supportive framework around me. Yeah, I think that's that's really good advice, um, and that'll be helpful to to anyone who's who's considering it. Um, and I suppose then si- since the PhD, I mean, you've you've passed the bar, you've you've lectured in Maynooth, you're now an assistant professor in in DCU. Um, like, can you talk us through kind of what I suppose what's happened since since uh, you finished your PhD and kind of what you've been up to since then? Yeah, sure. So I suppose the the natural route uh, for academics when you finish your PhD is to take whatever job you can, <laughs> uh, wherever you can. So people, it, it's very, very normal as an academic to spend a, a large portion of your, especially your early career, um, changing countries and cities kind of every nine, 12 months, maybe every two years, because you get maybe a postdoc and then a short-term position and then another short-term position. Um, so I was really lucky uh, that I got the, the job in Maynooth, first of all, when I was finishing my PhD. So I, I hadn't completed it yet. So I spent the final year of my, my PhD lecturing uh, in Maynooth, which was uh, really, really great and like a lovely experience. It's a, it's a great law school uh, and I really, I really enjoyed it. Um, and then, but I, was, I only had a year contract in Maynooth. I was covering for somebody who was on maternity leave. So when it was kind of coming to the end of it, I knew that I had to start looking for jobs. And I suppose my my uh, I suppose one of my priorities when I was looking was to try and stay here. So I had spent most of my twenties uh, kind of moving countries fairly frequently, uh, and largely outside Ireland. So I'd kind of made a decision that I was going to you know stay here. I'd qualified that at some point in the future it might be nice to build a practice, and that wouldn't be possible unless I was I was in the country. Um, so I kind of made that general decision and was kind of hoping for something to come up, I suppose, uh, and was very lucky that uh, a job in DCU came up and, and that I got it. So I got the assistant, assistant professorship there, very, very happy and qualified at the bar. So I have kind of, you know, an option if I want to in the future to, uh, to go into practice. Um, but yeah, it's really, academia is very much the look of the draw. It's unusual not to have to do a postdoc when you finish your PhD. Um, which is usually kind of a year or two when you finish that you go to another institution and depending on the type of postdoc it is you might either kind of work on a funded research project or uh, in a best case scenario you would get paid to turn your own PhD into a book usually Um, so Connor Casey who is in the PhD with me is uh, I suppose has been virtually in Florence in the European University Institute uh, for the last year on a PhD like that where he's uh, paid to kind of engage in his own research so that's the kind of more, I suppose, usual path that you do PhD and then postdoc uh, and then get a job. Um, you do kind of hear horror stories about people doing uh, one postdoc and then another postdoc and then still struggling to get a kind of a position, uh, which is very difficult because, you know, you don't go into academia for the money, but postdocs aren't particularly well funded sometimes. Um, so it, it, it's quite difficult to have done a PhD and then end up maybe in one or two of those positions without any kind of um, certainty in the long term. And that can cause people to get, you know, quite discouraged and to, to leave academia ultimately for, for jobs that have kind of more um, consistency and predictability. So 
you know, I think the thing that always goes underneath all of this is like, there are some really like unfortunate class-based elements to this. Like you have to be able to afford to go and do a master's or be able to get the funding to go and do it. And you have to be able to afford to do a PhD and spend a period of your of your time earning not a significant amount of money, whether that's because you've saved money yourself previously by working in a job that was very well paid or you've simply like kind of taken the decision to take the plunge. <laughs> um, but it kind of, unfortunately, in academia, sometimes it doesn't follow that just because you put in those uh, that those years with kind of, uh, I guess, less uh, monetary recognition of your work um, and a lot of work that you will necessarily get this kind of automatic payoff when you finish. And I suppose that's something that um, kind of we all have to consider to, to a greater or lesser extent, unfortunately, a greater extent sometimes. And it does cause, um, it does cause people to just leave academia. Uh, especially in kind of the first the first years where it, they may be kind of bouncing around between institutions with paid work for nine months and then no guarantee that after that after, after that period they'll have anything else um so I guess it, it's something to consider um there are ways you can kind of structure yourself or structure or try and structure your studies so that you minimize that like you can go to one of the Scandinavian institutions where they pay you a full salary to your PhD um or you can kind of um you know, try and, I suppose, orient your research so that you are uh, more employable. Um, but those uh, those strategies are kind of, you know, you kind of limited um, guarantee that that would pay off in terms of making your life easier. So I'm, I kind of recognize how, how fortunate I am that I was able to, to do the kind of work um, on the PhD and in the graduate programs um, without accruing um, significant amounts of debt because of <laughs> funding and scholarship. And that I that I got into a job straight away, it's not by any means um, the the kind of standard the standard path. Certainly not now. Yeah. Yeah. No. It, it sounds um, it sounds tough, but it, it does sound like it's it's quite a rewarding rewarding path once you once you can get kind of yourself settled. Um, I suppose one thing I would ask is what advice you might give to to someone in college now who's kind of thinking about going down the academic route and and kind of taking a similar path uh if what, what would have been handy for you to to have known that you know now yeah so oh god um probably the thing to make sure is that you really understand what academia involves um so i, I there was a somebody a legal historian tweeted the other day and he said between like sometime in the 1600s and the beginning of the 1700s, none of the fellows in Trinity College published anything academic at all. So I don't know what they were doing. They're just kind of like swanning around, eating dinner, um, probably teaching students at some point. Um, so academia now is uh, quite highly structured um, and there are kind of significant duties outside your own research and teaching that you have to undertake. So I think kind of to go in maybe without rose-tinted glasses to know that you know, I don't get just get to teach kind of privacy law in 17th century America or feminist theories of justice. Um, I have to teach, you know, like land law, contracts, torts, uh, admin, uh, legal systems. <laughs> um, so you have to kind of be aware that you have those kind of um, those kind of obligations. That there are also kind of a lot of kind of more and more maybe admin responsibilities that there are those kind of things. So I think don't go into it thinking, oh, is it wonderful? I'll, I'll do my PhD. I'll get a lovely office in Trinity overlooking Front Square and I'll just write books all the time and nobody will bother me. 
um, because I think you probably have a, a very rude awakening in terms of getting a job first of all and then getting one out and doing it. Um, so that's probably the main thing in terms of like really practical advice. You know, make sure that you've um, you've chosen any graduate programs you have to do in a way that gives you the skills you'll need to do your PhD. So try and almost like plot backwards. Like if you think you want to do a PhD in law and economics, make sure that you've chosen a graduate program that gives you some kind of training in economic methods that you can do kind of quant and qualitative analysis. Um, that those are like really important things because they're really easy to learn if somebody's teaching you and incredibly difficult to teach yourself. Um, so, so those are the most, that's kind of probably one of the most important things. But I think also just make sure that you enjoy writing, <laughs> uh, which sounds kind of so basic, but if you really struggle to kind of um, put pen to paper and, and get the article out and it kind of costs you so much spiritually <laughs> to get it all down on paper, um, then academia is probably going to like really test your patience and um, you have to be um, you know very patient in terms of like doing research very methodically and, and, and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting stuff and you also have to be very open to and able to handle criticism and um, so even very senior academics will say you know you've, you've put your heart and soul into this article or this book and then um, a reviewer comes along and peer review and kind of tears it apart and tells you <laughs> you don't know anything um, so you have to kind of be able to to deal with that and to um, internalize the comments in a way that is useful without necessarily um, thinking that the person is always correct. Um, so that might, you know, so people just don't like that, that kind of, um, I suppose, uh, conflict uh, within uh, their kind of uh, relationships with academia. So they might just like reading and writing <laughs> uh, and not necessarily like having it, it all kind of torn apart and dissected. Um, and it, if that's the case, then, you know, uh, probably academia as a career is not, uh, is not a particularly healthy place. Um, but yeah, that's probably kind of the general advice, I'd say. Yeah, I think that's that's really useful for anyone to hear. Um, it, it's not just sitting and writing and, and enjoying everything. Um, I suppose on that, would you have, like in your time, have you come across any books? Uh, like we'd like to ask on, on the Grad Life podcast if there's been any book recommendations you might have that, that have helped you, I suppose. So in, in your, your path so far, have, has any book kind of stood out as, as useful or inspiring? Yeah, so that's actually a really good question. I have one here. Um, Colin McCann, Letters to a Young Writer. I keep it on my desk. And it's not a, he's not a lawyer and it's not a book written for poor lawyers. But it's, um, it's an incredibly good book for kind of, I suppose, reminding you what good writing is and what you should be kind of striving for in your, in your writing and your research. That's a really good book. Like he has, it's incredibly short. It's not even kind of really broken into chapters. Each chapter might be kind of like four paragraphs and they're just kind of lessons. Um, and one of them is, he says, you can break all the rules you want, but first you have to know the rules. Uh, which is kind of something I kind of try and feed into my students <laughs> uh, because you can tell me till the cows come home what the law should be but you need to be able to tell me what the law is first and um, so I think that's a that's a really really good book um, Brian Stevenson who gave that kind of like really famous uh, talk about um, kind of uh, race relations and uh, the capacity of the civil rights movement in America uh, wrote a book called Just Mercy that the the movie was based on it that came out recently with famous young actor whose name I don't know <laughs> um so his he came to talk to us um 
when I was on Erasmus in the States when I was in third year in Trinity and he came in to talk to us and he hadn't given the TED talk or anything like that and uh, I suppose not really many people knew who he was and he was just so incredibly inspiring um, and really kind of reminded us all uh, what it means to be a lawyer and to be kind of a good lawyer in the, the position of uh, those of us engaged in the law and kind of uh, serving a, a greater good beyond ourselves. Uh, so I have his book as well and it's, um, it's really exceptional. Uh, it's not something you get to action probably if you're in commercial law, <laughs> but it's probably good to keep um, to keep kind of a, a, an eye on the on the bigger picture and the kind of role you're supposed to be playing in, so, in society. Yeah, I think either of those will be fantastic for for anyone kind of uh, not even outside kind of thinking about academics, just generally that in college, I think that both of them sound really, really useful. Um, I suppose then finally, I just want to ask kind of what you see coming down the line. Um, and you're still kind of early on uh, might you end up getting to do something related to your architectural dream or or what what do you see in in the future for you uh, i really really hope nobody ever lets me build a house because they would always certainly collapse um yeah i mean i'm i'm in gcu i'm i'm very happy i'm working on um working on a couple of kind of uh book projects um, so I'm continuing kind of my work on my doctoral work is um, hopefully going to be turned into a book at some point uh, and I kind of continue to to publish on kind of broadly kind of uh, law and technology and specifically as it relates to fundamental rights of the European Union so I still do that um, and that translates sometimes into commenting on news in Ireland uh, and how this state is or is not upholding our privacy rights. Um, so that's, I, I really enjoy that. I'm doing um, and have been doing kind of a bit of work for Rating the Gazeta, uh, doing kind of legal commentary, which is is really enjoyable because you get to kind of translate uh, ideas which seem quite abstract uh, into uh, kind of a fairly appreciable form, hopefully. Um, so I do, I do really enjoy that kind of doing the kind of, I suppose, public facing work of academia. Um, and then I'm also kind of starting a, a new project on um, I suppose uh, language rights and language identities in Ireland. So I do some work in law and literature and uh, my work in law and literature looks at Irish literature specifically and how uh, Irish authors have used um, various forms of literature uh, to challenge sort of uh, colonial ideas of the state and that the state is English speaking. Uh, so I'm, I'm doing a bit of work on that and that's hopefully going to turn into kind of a, a longer piece of research at some point uh, in the very near future. So yeah, that's, I can really only offer the next six months. <laughs> I have no idea beyond that. I think uh, at the moment, the next six months is, is plenty uh, of foresight. I don't think many people have much more than that. Uh, but that sounds really interesting um, and people will definitely have to keep an eye out for that. Um, so look, that, that's everything from me. Uh, thank you very much, Roisin, again, for, for coming on to the show. It's, it's, it's been really, really interesting to hear your insights. Thanks very much, Matthew.